So welcome to season two of Naturally Smart People. And uh, the plan this time is having spent the first sort of six interviews wandering around the headspace of my friends and colleagues from from day-to-day life. Uh, this time round, I want to explore it a little bit wider and actually start to throw the net out to people who I've never met before, but I'm really intrigued in the things that they're doing. And so the intention behind the second series is really to explore that in terms of a series of, um, let's say, scapes. I suppose that's the word, scapes. Um, you know where we have a landscape or a mindscape? I'm sort of wondering whether we could stretch that and have um, soundscapes, tastescapes, cosmoscapes, um, spiritscapes, sentiencescapes. Those are the things that, in a sense, are going to be the basis of this second series. Talking to people around the world, and I haven't got them all listed yet, so if you're out there, you might well be... Uh, tapped in the next few days to be asked whether it's possible to have an interview but but the, the idea being that we're looking at the way in which human beings um, connect with each other with the environment around them and the whole sort of relationship that go on, goes on in that um, biosphere and that's the stuff that I want to get my head around with people this time. So the first interview that I have managed to pull out of the ether is with through through a friend of mine in Los Angeles, uh, Leilani Yats. And Leilani's working at the moment over in Guatemala. And she said to me, oh, you need to talk to Oliver Gaucher. Because Oliver's doing some work on natural building. And that would be a really interesting thing to talk about. So tonight's episode is with Oliver. And um, it's really, I suppose, exploring landscapes. So I hope you like it. And uh, welcome to Series 2. Thank you. I mean, it might be useful just for the folks that are listening in on the... Naturally Smart People podcast that we run, just to give us an idea of who you are. You know, what's what's your background? Where you what, what got you to this point? Well, it would be a really kind of long, convoluted story. I've been <laughs> traveling internationally for about twelve years now, and I've had over sixty different jobs in that time. But I've always been interested in, in practical and actionable skills. Um, you know, sort of that are more tangible and that provide for people's needs. Yeah, and. Yeah. I took an apprenticeship with the Cobb Cottage Company out of Coquille, Oregon, uh, almost five years ago. Mm-hmm. And from there, I sort of specialized in Cobb and earthen building. And during that apprenticeship, I traveled around to different areas, California, New Mexico, Ecuador, working with clients and teachers alike, sort of getting my skills up and transitioning from conventional construction, which I had done for quite a few years, and sort of retooling or, or learning new skills aimed more towards uh, natural materials and sustainable or even regenerative building, which I specialize in now. And since completing the apprenticeship, I've done quite a few projects internationally in the Philippines, in Senegal, in the United States, and quite a few now here down in Guatemala, where I've lived for a year. 
Yeah, I, I love that idea of going to Guatemala to learn to dance. <laughs> I found yeah. that. <laughs> I yeah. that was just super. I did take dance lessons <laughs> when I first started coming here. That in Spanish uh, really kind of endeared me to the community and the place. I'm still rubbish at dance, but my Spanish has gotten pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I noticed in your bio, you mentioned about the practicalities. There's numerous jobs, chef, teacher, baker, maritime engineer, builder. You know, they're, they're all very hands-on. They're all very sort of practical, pragmatic things, I guess. But underpinning it is is a philosophy, I guess, an understanding of how we relate to environments. Yeah? Is that... Absolutely. I mean, the only way forward is to work in combination with nature. And, you know, though my passion is towards these practical skill sets, and that's definitely what I focus on in the beginning when I'm learning something new, the idea is to get to a mastery of it, or at least a competency, where Mm. I can make it beautiful. Mm. So anybody can learn how to throw up earthen walls or bang together some nails and some wood and make a structure. And, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can even make it strong. But I would like to be, or I'm hoping that I have become in in a certain capacity, someone who can not only do the practical and the necessary, but turn it into an art form where it elevates what you do and creates living environments that are aesthetically pleasing, not only functional. Uh, along with, you know, all of the other sort of practical skills that I've focused on, everything from cooking, well, yeah, you can feed someone with basic mm. ingredients, but there's an art form to it where it becomes, you know, um, a really delicious meal where presentation comes in, the mixing of different elements and spices, or you know, and that applies to just about any practical skill. You can take it to a level where mm. it becomes an art form, and that's where I'm really passionate about. Mm. So there's a sort of transcendence from the... Yeah, the day-to-day undertaking of these things into a, a whole other level of engagement and experience with it that that gets gets let's let's for sake of argument, you could, it's almost spiritual. Is that sort of what what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, you, yeah, there's absolutely. A, there's a sort of a feel to this that brings us well, into. Well, to me, this is where all the fun is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you can transcend just the absolute necessary and learn to. You know, not just take care of your own needs or the needs of your loved ones and community, but push it further. And like, how much fun can you have with it in the process? How much fun and enjoyment can you give to the people around you when you have a finished product or uh, Mm -hmm. you've learned to master a service to Mm -hmm. a degree where, you know, it's enjoyable for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. And certainly when it comes to landscape uh, management and design and the same with structures, the absolutely essential part for me and for many of my colleagues that I work with is melding these designs and these goals that, you know, obviously we want an, an outcome from. We, we have personal needs that we need to address, mm. but also taking into account how to interact with the ecosystem. And if they're done or understood or planned well enough it can actually reach a level where both sides are helping each other out and become greater than the sum of their individual parts. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where, you know, you really get into the part where not only is it fun, but it's inspiring. Other people come around to see what you're doing and want to get involved. It builds community. Um, It creates lasting relationships. And those aren't the things that I got into building or design 
to achieve. But as I've started to integrate sort of a more holistic idea into the designs and, and the build process, all of these have become sort of side effects or, I mean, side effects almost has a negative connotation. Um, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, these, yeah. these other elements have come into the the building and design process that I wouldn't have expected from the beginning. They're not, they're not perhaps the, for want of a better word, the conventional route map. They're not written into the script of the instruction manuals, but they're actually the 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 feel of what what makes it work. They're the things that I suppose um, define the success of it yeah, in the long run, aren't they? They're, that's they're the that's a good way of putting yeah. it. Um, what I, for me, it was a night and day difference when I transitioned away from industrial building or conventional building, as some people call it. Um, or even conventional farming, which I've worked in a lot as well, um, mm. or different places around the world. And those really felt like jobs. Those were grueling. I mean, definitely not to say that there's not a ton of work, even in regenerative aspects of land management and building. Mm. There's <laughs> plenty of sweaty, dirty days, without mm. a doubt. Mm. But there are also these other elements at play, um, the connections between people, environment, community, um, and, and also trying to find a way to make it practical and profitable sort of kind of constantly keep me engaged and inspired and pushing forward, trying to innovate and trying to see past my own limitations, both creatively and, <laughs> you know, there's just so many times where it's like, if I was just a little bit smarter, all of this would be so much easier. <laughs> Okay, but that, that's an interesting point in the sense of, 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 of another aspect of your what I understand of the work you're doing because of the work on the abundant edge and this idea of the edge effect, mm -hmm. you know, that, that we're not alone on this. We're actually extending ourselves into communities of practice and experience that always exposes us to that interface with something new. And it's an incredibly creative place to be, you know, that... that the, the spark that comes of just finding another way that someone's interpreted how to do something that you've tried to struggle with for ages and failed miserably on your own plat on your own place, which is my my world writ large, you know, <laughs> constant failure. <laughs> A lot of us, yeah, yeah. Have but my this idea of use, yeah, using the I mean, I love this idea that you've got with your with your podcast of the abundant edge. This idea of the edge effect that comes out of permaculture and. It is a it is a philosophy, I think. You know, I think what you're exposing and exploring, in a sense, is a, is a way of being that engages with these things in quite profound ways. You know, it's, it isn't just the technical. We're into something far more that's taking us to another level of application. And that perhaps is why people are, I don't know, my hunch is that's why people are attracted to it. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, permaculture has been, more than anything, a new way of looking at the world around me mm. and, and having sort of a new checklist of things that I ought to consider when making decisions. And obviously, it comes into direct play in my work in designing and, and building structures or designing and implementing landscapes. Mm. Those are all the obvious applications, and that's mo mostly what you'll learn in a permaculture design course. But where I'm really passionate about these days is seeing what other practices or criteria or projects I can apply the same 
teachings from permaculture and, you know, a lot of other um, philosophies too, mm. which, you know, maybe have originally been intended to be applied to farming or to um, landscape architecture or building. Mm. But honestly, if, if, they're, if they're worth anything, they'll apply to a lot of other things in life. And it's one of the reasons why I use permaculture principles so often is because I have yet found the limitations or uh, a practical application in which they don't enhance the planning and consideration process. Mm -hmm. And so having these criteria to constantly be referencing just to make sure that you're staying on track and that you're really seeing the whole picture um, – it acts as sort of a playbook that can guide you through a surprising amount of experiences in life, not just sort of the more obvious applications. Mm, nice. Yeah. So, so would the word symbiotic come into that? I mean, in, in, in the sense of, can you have something like a symbiotic building? Would that make sense? It depends on how many elements you're taking into consideration. Mm. I don't, often use the word symbiotic, um, but I feel like it's well incorporated in the idea of a regenerative structure. Mm. Mm. Now, certainly buildings are a lot more difficult to design by regenerative criteria because essentially you're using dead materials and the building tends not to continue to grow, um, though I have seen some ways in which that has been transcended or pushed to the boundaries as well. And it's something that I'm always... <laughs> trying yeah. to challenge myself to do, you know, depending, you know, within the criteria and the needs of the client as well. Yeah, because there's guys like so, George and Mitchell, isn't there, is playing around with the use of mycelial structure in, in buildings. And, mm. you know, that that whole notion of buildings being sentient, um, but mm -hmm. not necessarily in the way in which we would perhaps Im imagine that as humans, because the time frames are very different. But, but the very fact, yeah, absolutely. you know, the, the, the fact we're working with Earth and if we play that line of the Earth having a, a consciousness of some form, then the sentience is embedded in everything. And it's just a question of where, where, where we draw the line at any given moment in our history and level of understanding. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. So that's the symbiosis I'm sort of intrigued about in terms of the work you're doing because it, it seems to me that you're really pushing into that frontier of reimagining what we do with, with, with the physical human space and how we use it to build shelter and how we use it to create environments that we want to live and thrive in that are both practical but also healthy. In the in in the mm -hmm. in the biggest sense, you know. Yeah, and, and completely transcend the sum of their parts, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the individual materials that make up a building don't tell the story of the lives lived inside of it, or the functions performed, or the ceremonies carried out. And whenever I enter into a, a new relationship with a client or a new design project, those are always the questions that I focus on is what do you plan to do in this space? Because anybody can build a box to contain somebody um, and keep them safe and sort of house the basic functions. But I really make an effort to understand what the client or collaborator intends to do and how they want to grow over time. Mm -hmm. Because if you design something just for the stage of life that they are currently in, 
and make it difficult to expand or sort of transform as they grow as people, as the community transforms around them, as the uh, ecosystem matures and goes through its cycles, then you'll never achieve regeneration of the building. And like I said, it, you know, that's already harder to do than you than it is mm. with a landscape. Mm. So attempting to understand how time and functions and activities are going to interact with the space um, can kind of start to inform a way of looking at you know, the basic elements that will create a structure and see them as something that will, I guess, be sort of a collaborator in the lifestyle that will happen within the structure. So, and when you, when you flip that way of looking at it, it opens up all these new criteria. It opens mm. up all of these new questions that you have to ask and consider. Um, and so it can, it can get very complex and, and kind of nuanced after a while. And this is where I'm trying to explore and improve. So, so in a sense, just 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 give me an example of maybe a, a recent building that you've been working on. Just just could you explain to me some of the sort of fundamentals of the structure? What are the physical things that you're using to put these buildings together with? Certainly. Um, well, I try and stay open to doing something new in every context. But there's always, at least if you stay in the same region, there's a handful of materials that are sort of abundant where you are and others that would either have to be imported or would have a higher carbon footprint. So we try and use sparingly uh, or at least responsibly. So there's a, there's uh, a really it, close locus to place then, isn't there? So the places yes. themselves are, you look at before you even begin the build in the sense of what's here. What's already available? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I essentially go onto any new site and approach it as if I were designing the landscape, nice. even if I was just asked to do a building. Yeah. And I go through the same sort of site assessment and considerations um, as I would for any sort of permaculture design. Sure. Because I see, especially buildings, as one of the most important and potentially energy consumptive elements in any landscape because they are, I mean, basically the house or the main structure is the nucleus of the cell of whatever the landscape is. And as a result, almost all energy and resources pass through that point. Mm. Um, I'm getting another subject here, but um, <laughs> let me go back to what you're asking, <laughs> what materials I tend to use. Mm -hmm. Well, a good example here in Guatemala, we live in sort of the mountain valleys along the edge of a very large lake called Lake Atitlan mm -hmm. in the western highlands of the country. And every year in the rainy season, between the combination of earthquakes, massive rainfalls and stuff, a lot of sediment, a lot of rocks, um, a lot of minerals wash down into these valleys where these towns are. And as a result, we basically get a replenished source of sand, gravel and stones every single year. Now, when you go into the hillsides, you can find a very clay-rich subsoil, uh, which mm. hasn't washed away because of the root systems in the forest and stuff holding them in place. And I really try to mostly focus on these two resources for a handful of reasons. One, obviously, because there's an abundance of them, it means that you can source your materials either on-site or within the village and employ locals to move things around rather than machinery. Mm. 
that would otherwise truck it from a much larger distance. Uh, also, because they are mineral elements or materials, they don't break down in organic processes. Nothing eats them. They don't rot. They, if maintained correctly, can potentially last yeah. as long as they're maintained infinitely. Yeah. I mean, all of the oldest structures in the world are all built from mineral materials. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, you get into certain things that mineral materials either struggle or can't perform, like the framing for a roof, and then we look into other things. But we're also in a very heavily forested area, and it's not hard to find locally or very closely sourced, uh, mostly cypress, but also a lot of pine, especially in the higher mountains. And those are the main materials that I try to make the majority of the structures on here in this region because those are the resources that are most available. Mm. They're also pretty durable, aren't they? I mean, you've got high levels of resin and well, have you in the woods themselves that enable them to last for a long time. So, Certainly, yeah. 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 I mean, and there's also, you know, all sorts of different processes of maintenance and treatment that you can use on organic materials like wood or bamboo mm. in order to extend its lifespan. I mean, I work a lot with bamboo as well. Fortunately, it's, go it's grown down in the tropical areas of the coast. It's a little bit too high in elevation here for them to reach the size that we tend to look for in construction. Okay. But for the most part, we can gr grow bamboo up here. And we use some of the smaller diameter bamboo as the inner weavings of the wall systems for a local version of wattle and dog, which is called bahareke. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I use that a lot on wall systems, especially when the the criteria of the building doesn't call for some very large thermal mass of wall. Mm. And because of the climate here, we pretty much don't need to insulate anything. The only thing we insulate for is roofs because they tend to be made out of sheet steel. And when the rain comes down, it can be deafening. So we put uh, acoustic um, insulation just underneath the roofing panel so that it doesn't become too loud. Um, as I'm currently renting a small place that does not have that insulation, uh, I can tell you it's a huge <laughs> difference <laughs> when the big rains come and it's almost deafening in here. Fortunately, we're in the dry season now. But part of the artisanship, I suppose, is that consciousness of that need. You know, that you're building buildings that are not just functioning the, to one thing, but they're, they're, you know, they're taking note of the fact there's an environment beyond them that's going to affect them internally just as much as externally by volume yeah, and absolutely. sound and all that type absolutely. of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very interesting. So so, so then the question, I suppose, that, that that throws up for me in, you know, in a modern, urban, westernised city environment is how transferable do you perceive this to be you know is there something that we could bring to the cities the, to the suburban environment or the urban environment and in what way might we do that i think there's infinite possibilities to bring this to an urban environment right now what is keeping this from happening is that most urban environments have extremely strict uh codes and permitting processes that don't allow for, I mean, you could call them experimental yeah. building practices as coding offices often do, but all of the materials that I'm working with are the original building materials. And we've only abandoned them in the last 50 or 60 years on mass. Mm. I mean, cement has been around for much longer than that, but it hasn't been common in most buildings for 
more than just a handful of decades. It really started to gain in popularity after World War II. And so, especially in places like where I live now, or many of the other developing countries in which I've gone to build, the local people are maybe one, maybe two generations removed from building predominantly or almost entirely with natural materials. Okay. Their grandparents know it, or, or their parents sometimes do it. Uh, most of the buildings that have been around in the town that I live in, which is a traditional Mayan village, are all built with adobe. Okay. And I still am surprised when I get pushback from locals. They're like, why are you doing it with mud? Will it work? And I'm like, well, your house has been there for a long time. Yeah. Why, why is this so strange? Because they see cement and steel as progress, as modernization, and um, mm -hmm. as being inherently better than the traditional way of building, which is, which is so strange to me. But it's uh, something that I'm always trying to communicate when I come to places like this. I but, you know, you get just as much pushback in, like, the urban context that you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, the original skyscrapers, if anybody looks up online a city called Shebam in Yemen, Mm -hmm. Those were the original skyscrapers built about 800 years ago, reaching about 10 or 11 stories and were mostly used for residences. Now, they built them that high mostly to protect themselves from warring clans that would come and raid the village. That's right. But yeah, they're still there. those are entirely yeah. made of adobe. Yeah, and they're still there. They're, they're still there yeah. and they're in an earthquake zone and they are in a <laughs> flood zone. Fascinating. So yeah. <laughs> if they could survive that long... <laughs> it should at least give you pause to think that perhaps this is applicable in other contexts as well. Now, obviously, every material has its own profiles of you know, advantages and disadvantages, and those need to be considered in any build project, but no more or less than cement or wood or steel. All of these things that we've grown to mm. consider the standard for building, mm. um, again, only because of the affordability of fossil fuels and the ability to transport and process these materials en masse, has it even become affordable to do this? And so we've sort of run amok with these uh, materials that are very, very highly consumptive and require a high level of technical ability and training to be able to work with, which has had the effect of marginalizing or displacing people from the process of building their own structures. And I'm very passionate about bringing that back and making it available for people who, you know, want to reclaim ownership of their build process. Mm. I guess that's a very powerful argument in terms of the definition of what we might mean by regeneration, the, the, the re-socializing and engaging of people who are currently marginalized and disassociated with that type of activity could then become players in that game again they could be encouraged to participate they could learn these new skills or relearn these skills that are old skills and and reculture around them you know that, mm -hmm. that, absolutely that, i mean the think definition about how many of regeneration spend 30 years of their lives paying mm -hmm. off a mortgage because they don't think they either have the skills or the time to provide their own basic necessities mm. and that's such a shame because <laughs> you can build a house in a couple of months and all of a sudden be debt free for those 30 years you would have otherwise been paying a mortgage. Mm. And I mean, think about what that could mean for the freedom of your lifestyle. Yeah. If you just take the time to sort of reclaim ownership of your, 
of your shelter. I sort of take it as a well-being issue as well, because I think there's a, there's a well-being dimension in terms of economic well-being there, but there's also, it intrigues me in terms of the use of clay, the use of dirt in, in building as a, from what we currently know about the therapeutic effect of soil and the bacteria in soil, um, just just as a bit of a side issue, really. But I, I've been reading just recently this thing about um, MVARK. I don't know if you've come across it. It's a microbacterium that, that triggers serotonin in the brain when you put your hands into the earth. And it's an effect that's quite well documented. It's been researched a lot in Royal Marsden in London and a couple of universities in, in the UK quite recently, looking at what happens when people basically go and make mud, you know, water and mud in the ground and play around with it. And gardening is one clear example of where that effect comes into play. But I would imagine, I don't know whether you've seen evidence of this, but if you're building with something like clay, and I'm presuming that that's a feature of what you're using, then there is a serotonin effect. There's a physical effect, a physiological effect of that type of approach of, to the build which is clearly not going to be evident in the modern or modern westernized construction techniques you know so there's something very yeah. very profoundly powerful in what you're advocating beyond simply the economic it's actually around well holistic well-being absolutely and you really see that effect mostly in students so i've been working with this for a long time and i'm in the dirt all the time in fact um <laughs> I'm completely a mess right now coming back from, a, from an oven build project. It's the glories of audio. I haven't time to wash off. <laughs> so like being around mud is, is very normal for me. And, you know, maybe I don't notice as much the effect of the purifying or extraction process of clay uh, as much as I did when I got started. But you really do see it when the students come in and work for the first time with their hands and the feet in mm. the mud. Mm. Um you know, absolutely, like what you said, the therapeutic process, clays are used as um, sort of health extraction. Um, uh, sorry, what, how is it talked about again? As sort of like a, a toxin extraction? No, what what it does is it... a purification method? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's research from people like Chris Lowry at Bristol University. And they're, they're basically, they hypothesize that the immune response in, in the body to the bacterium causes the brain to produce serotonin and serotonin mm. in you know as we know um it elevates the mood it decreases anxiety um there's arguments that it improves cognitive function and then it goes on to all sorts of other things that they're thinking it has an effect on such as the reduction of cancers and other diseases so there's a huge hugely powerful effect of having ourselves in them in the mud being part of that physical landscape if you like in terms of what we build and how we build it but also what we then live in and it seems to me that that's where you that's our interface we talked about right at the beginning almost in terms of this notion of what natural building is it isn't just putting structures up it's putting up structures which profoundly challenge the orthodoxy absolutely i mean i'm convinced that clay is probably the second most magical substance on <laughs> earth second only to water mm. given all the different properties and functions that it can perform, which you know only makes sense that when you combine the two of them, they can do so much together. Everything from obviously building a skyscraper 
but down to filtering the air, releasing negatively charged ions to help your absorption of oxygen. Yeah. Um, I've written a lot about earthen plasters and the health effects that they can have on the interior of a living space just by helping to regulate the humidity indoors. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it'll release yeah, yeah. extra moisture if it's a very dry day or if it's a dry time of year. Mm. I've even heard, I haven't seen this in person, but I've heard from many people who work with earthen plasters. If you do it, if you coat it uh, on the walls in your bathroom, you know how you, you walk out of a hot shower yeah, and yeah. the mirror is all fogged up because yeah. of the vapor? It clears the mirror. That actually won't yeah. happen. Yeah, it'll yeah, actually yeah. absorb all of that vapor and slowly release it to sort of um, even out the humidity inside. And yeah. that, you know, that has so many respiratory benefits. Uh, it helps to purify some of the toxins out of the air. It gets rid of bad odors. Uh, and then, like I said, releasing of this is where yeah this well. is where i find it so there's a sort of element to this which is coming back into this idea of sentience that there are this is an intelligent building as far as i can see it's a living building and it's living yeah, in a it's different as close way as you're gonna get yeah, yeah unless, you of know, course you know you and, live underneath a tree or inside yeah, of it or something but yeah, most yeah. of us aren't owls and it's hard to connect the wi-fi to it so <laughs> yeah it's a, but it's a it's a wonderfully sort of evocative sense of what we can both do at the moment, but perhaps also a picture of where we could go next. And, yes. I, and, yeah. and, and in, in a sense, the it's the frontier of what's possible and building that skill set up with sufficiently large numbers, I guess, to be able to then turn, take it to take it to scale. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and because it's so moldable and sculptable, it takes other types of materials and other technologies extremely well like you can very easily embed electrical wiring into your walls without having to okay. faff about with all the conduit and stuff yeah yeah um so you're reducing you can, a lot of waste <laughs> yeah it's just yeah. there's so many options for appropriate technology that you can integrate with holistically designed buildings and i feel like we're only just sort of starting to scratch the surface mm. of what is possible with this um most of my clients who I've worked for up to this point are operating on very small budgets, and I come in as a solution of what they can do with local materials and, and make as ambitious and healthy of a building within a limited budget as possible. But you know, you could spend easily as much on an earthen or a natural building as you would a conventional home, but I promise you, you would get a lot more for it. <laughs> and so, you know, if you had the budget and you were considering that but hadn't yet looked into what is possible with natural materials, I can guarantee you would get a lot more for the same amount of money if you sort of open the scope of what, what you are comfortable with and what you wanted to integrate or consider. Nice. So, Oliver, what, what, what's next on your agenda? Where are you, where are you, where are you heading with this? Oh my goodness, we have so many, <laughs> so many projects coming up in the upcoming year. We actually, as a, as a company, we just bought uh, farmland here in Guatemala, and we've started to develop it as a demonstration regenerative farm model, um, yeah. which we may be teaching some courses on in the upcoming season. But right now, we're just focusing on getting the systems set up on a pretty limited budget. Um, I'm of course in charge of designing and building the structures. Yeah. And two of my partners and colleagues with the Bun and Edge are master designers of permaculture and landscapes. So they're taking care of the market garden, 
the perennial systems, the food forests, the water systems. I mean, yeah. you know, with yeah. a with a very small piece of land, we plan on really maximizing and showcasing what you can do by implementing, you know, fairly simple systems to put in. Mm. And for those who are inspired by our projects, they can always come and take our courses where we teach everybody how to do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, know. And I mean, that's just one of them. Um, I'm going to Kuwait in the Middle East uh, this upcoming summer during the rainy season here. And I'm going to be trying to open a branch of Abundant Edge over there, but for more of an urban and a dry land setting. So, you know, a very different yeah. <laughs> ecology than we're used to here in Guatemala, but showing that this can apply to places that are far less resilient of ecosystems mm -hmm. and have just as transformative effects even if, you know, the environment around you is almost the complete opposite. That's one of the lovely things, I think, about the underlying philosophy of permaculture, that the capability to, to go from one environment to another and the same core principles apply. It's just that we have to take careful attention to the context in which we apply them. You know, it seems to me that that's one of the universal benefits of this type of approach. It's not, it's not a singular solution. It's holistic. It's always going to be capable of accommodating and and fitting to different types of places as long as we pay really careful attention to the earth care, people care, surplus concept as a sort of fundamental. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and, you know, with uh, more and more allies coming to help us work on these types of projects and advance the agenda that includes everyone that, mm. you know, mm. um, takes into consideration all the participators instead of just the ones who can afford it or those who have privilege and whatnot, but mm. actually, you know, goes to benefit the larger community and the environment as a whole. Constantly, those people are inspiring me, which is why I have the podcast and reach out to them regularly. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Frankly, I'm just plagiarizing all of their good ideas. I mean, every once in a while, I have a little flash of inspiration and <laughs> try something new. But there are so many giants and brilliant people who come before me, and I'm really just sort of riding their coattails and trying to keep up. Yeah, I think we're all playing around with these these beautifully shining stars of ideas and actions and and slowly but surely they're connected and yeah you know just having a chance to chat with you today has been fabulous simply because it's given me that next connection known to another part of the world and i want to come and see what you're up to man <laughs> it just sounds yeah fantastic. you've really got to come and visit us there's so much going on i'm only one operation yeah. in this in this yeah. valley, on this lake, there are so many other people from the Fungi Academy to Atlanta yeah. Organics. Yeah. I, I came here originally to intern with an incredible builder who does much more ambitious projects <laughs> than I do and is a specialist in bamboo. Yeah, um, yeah there's so much around here. Mm. It's, it's a fantastic community to be a part of and to be contributing to. And we'd love to see you here. Wonderful. Thanks, Oliver. It was super to chat to you today. And I really look forward to meeting sometime in the near future, perhaps at a workshop, perhaps either in your place or over this part of the world. But one, one way or another, we'll continue to follow the work of Abundant Edge and your stuff and your team stuff because it is really, really inspiring. 
Well, thank you so much. And likewise, I've had a real pleasure talking to you. We'll definitely keep in touch in the future. Yeah. I'll let you know when I come and visit my family in the UK next time. Do. I think they're not far from you. I've yeah. got an aunt who lives out just outside of Manchester. Oh, that's really close. Yeah, good stuff. Let me know. Yeah, my mother's British, so I've got half the family over there. There's a good chance I'll come and see you as well. Good on you, mate. Look forward to it. All right, you take care of yourself. Yeah, we'll travel safe. See you soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. I don't know about you, but I think that that's probably the best possible start that we could have to Series 2 of Naturally Smart People. Thank you so much, Oliver, for a superb beginning to our new series. Um, the idea of building and using the natural world to, to guide and inform it and to draw on its resources without exploiting and denigrating the environment seems to me to make such sense. And it's a frontier technology in, a, in the sense of where we are perhaps at the moment in our modern world, but one that I think will increasingly influence the way in which we look at the building, the built environment and the idea of the living built environment, the places that become healthy, regenerative and engaging people back into the process of construction and that, that raises some interesting challenges and something that maybe would be a point of conversation at a later stage would be to think into the implications for policy for this type of activity in the urban space and as, as Oliver said you know the regulatory frameworks the orders and permits and codes that currently exist are geared towards a particular form of construction um, which sort of alienates people and I think the if you take the idea of localism and bring it into play against this sort of discussion then clearly the scope to start to reimagine this um, this particular landscape this scape that is a theme throughout this series this time is one that I think we will continue to come back to there's other guys that I'm going to talk to during the next few weeks who have other perspectives on this um, both small and large scale and I think by the end of the series you'll get a sense of where that could take us in terms of visualizing the future through a different lens but also making very practical steps at the moment in making that happen so thank you to Oliver again if you want to get further information about Oliver's work then go to abundantedge.com I'll put all of this onto the schoolofsustainability.com website as a link with the reading list around it and links to things that Oliver's mentioned during, during his conversation with me um, so hope you enjoyed it thank you for listening uh, my name's Paul Clark Thanks to the boats for the music and, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye.